We are in the 23rd chapter, the Gospel of Matthew. We have begun considering the Lord's denunciation of the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And these denunciations can also be considered as woe judgments. It is the judge of all who is pronouncing these woes. It is a solemn passage of Scripture indeed, this whole 23rd chapter of Matthew, one that must be proclaimed in truth if it is to be, of course, understood to be the word of the living God. We're going to be looking at the fourth woe pronounced today, which is found in Matthew chapter 23, and verses 16 through 22. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. I don't know, you might have to be somewhat up in age to remember a very common saying that used to be around quite a bit and that saying was, a man's word is his bond. A man's word in his, is his bond. Well, we heard that years ago. I don't so much hear it anymore. A man's character would stand for itself. When a commitment of some kind was made, you could count on that person to keep what they said they would do. Even if it was difficult, even if it was costly, those who were indeed trustworthy didn't need to put themselves under an oath. They didn't need to bind themselves under a legal constraint because they were honor-bound to fulfill a promise or a commitment that had been made. But you and I should have a far higher motive than that. You and I should have the fear of God and the honor of his name as our motive. The Lord's charge to us, as in the Sermon on the Mount, is swear not at all. And of course, that's not speaking of vile language uh, that is not to be used either. It's speaking of making an oath or a vow or it is binding oneself by something else 
that they're going to do what they said they would do. And so the Lord's charge to those of us who know him is swear not at all. Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. Let your word be your bond. That doesn't forget or, or forbid legal contracts or public oaths or binding vows. Those things are necessary in a sinful society. It does forbid the glib use of swearing in common speech. So often used by those who are really covering up some particular falsehood. But our text is not about the right or wrong use of swearing or oaths. Our text is exposing the character of these blind guides, these who found a way to get around the binding of an oath, fools who vainly thought they could excuse themselves by devising a law that could give them an out, and thus would at the same time be teaching and leading others in a wrong way, in a way that would justify themselves when they would neglect a, new, a duty or a commitment that they'd made. When these hypocrites misapplied which oaths or vows were binding and which ones were not binding, obviously thinking to give themselves a, a way to justify breaking a solemn commitment, it did not only affect them, it affected those they should have been leading in the right ways of God. It affected others. I think here we can make a legitimate application. What you do, the words you say, the places you go, the activities in which you engage can have a great effect upon others as well as yourself. A great influence on others. Leading does not only involve instruction or rules for others to live by, not only teaching what is right, but what is doing right and the doing of the right as an example. How solemn that what you say and what you do not only teachers or those in particular places of authority, but parents who should lead by example, or even friends to friends. It'll have sway upon those with whom you're in contact. Whether you realize it or not, you have influence, some kind of influence where you are. So what was said of Pastor Timothy should apply to anyone who are in a place of influence. As in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, the Apostle Paul instructs him, uh, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I couldn't help but think when studying this passage that one of the greatest sorrows, inward, painful grief, for the regenerate believer, 
For the one who has truly been brought under the conviction and made to see themselves as a sinner and brought to the wondrousness of, of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the trust in the Christ of the cross. The truly regenerate believer not only is ashamed of what happened in the past, but of the remembrance also of how others were hurt in some way when we lived in sin. I think sometimes thinking of the neglects, the neglects that were there, as well as the wrong actions that hurt others. That's a great grief to those who are in Christ to remember those things. So the Lord who had and will after address those he now reproves ascribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now he addresses them as blind guides. And he calls them fools and blind. We're looking at a holy, H-O-L-Y, indignant Savior. An indignant reprover of those who were doing something horrendous. They were turning the truth of God upside down. They were twisting it. They were falsifying it. And it was doing serious harm to those who were led by them. So again, we read in Matthew chapter 23 and verses 16 through 19. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? So here, we have a very solemn reproof, of course. One of eight, the Lord here, brings against the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. The folly, absolute absurdity of these scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites is brought out here. And it's brought out of what they taught about the binding or non-binding of oaths. The temple, with its inner sanctuary, consisted, of course, of the holy place. Then the holy of holies. That's where in the tabernacle, particularly, God had manifested himself in the glorious cloud, the bright cloud in the holy of holies that came to be known as the Shekinah, which means the presence to say, then, that to swear by the gold of the temple was binding, but the temple itself was not binding, exposed them as fools. It exposed them as blind. It was like what Peter would declare about those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. They wrongly apply them to their own detriment. We read about that, of course, today 
when we began the service together in 2 Peter chapter 3. The twisting, the turning, the perverting of the very word of God. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them, wrote Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. What we have to understand is something very clearly. God does not take lightly as God incarnate in our passage the mishandling of his holy word. And those who are hearers, you are to weigh carefully what you read and what you hear. There is to be a full attentiveness given to the word of God. It's an attentiveness given to God who gave his word. Bypass the preacher. This is God's word, of course, that's being proclaimed. To prayerfully make sure it's according to what is written, what is proclaimed, what is preached. To haphazardly listen to the word of God is sin. It's an affront to the living God himself. Little thought of sometimes. The Lord Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 verse 24, Take heed what you hear. For with what measure you meet it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. Those when the gospel was proclaimed, they were called noble. If they weighed what was proclaimed with the scriptures, with what was known to be the word of God, with the Old Testament scriptures that they had. As in Acts 17, verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. To teach it, to teach it requires a more thorough knowledge and one that shows itself true and rightly applied, and that becomes open to the inspection and the consciences of men. For instance, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Those who are in Christ, we're seeing that in 1 John, they have an inward teacher. They have the work of the Holy Spirit. They have the capacity to comprehend what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. Likewise, these hypocrites absurdly taught that which reversed the order of importance. They turned upside down and subverted the very truth of God. Teaching that the, uh, the gift upon the altar was more important than the altar itself and you could swear by the gift and that would bind you, but not by the altar. In verse 16, Whosoever shall swear by the altar, they said, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, 
he is guilty. Absolutely absurd what they were teaching. So the Lord, with a reproving word, no doubt further infuriating these blind guides for the word of God tends to either make some mad or it causes them to think. He refutes the folly of their blind and satanically moved teaching because it is satanic to pervert or subvert or twist the word of God. In verse 17, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? Or verse 19, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Very seriously, God makes known he hates the distorting of his word. He hates the distortion of his word, the mishandling of his word. And none are more in danger from that than those who fail to listen carefully and to use discernment when it is claimed to be being taught. The adversary is real. And his purpose is to destroy the truth of God, not as much by denying it many times, but by using enough of it to deceive the unwary, to twist it, to distort its truth. It's a very solemn thing that takes place. And he knows more of Scripture than we do. And he knows how to twist and turn and pervert and misapply and tell lies and deceive. The greatest spiritual danger to the churches of Jesus Christ is not persecution, by the way. Oh yeah, that comes at times. That's a tactic of the adversary. But that's used to purge them. That's used to purge the true from the false. That's used to purge the worldliness that still remains in those who are Christians. It has its purpose. But the deception of teachers who themselves are convinced of what is false And that to the unwary who think anybody who claims to be speaking the word of God is speaking the truth. That's the real problem. Again, I would remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13 that all who, li who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse Deceiving and being deceived. You see, there's one thing missing. There's one solemn element that's missing 
that's absent. If this element is absent, it easily puts one into the position of being deceived, of swallowing the poison of false teachers to the destruction of the soul. And that's how serious it is. What is that one thing? What is that one thing? The fear of God. The actual reality of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is essential. At another time, the Lord Jesus Christ would say to these Pharisees, I know you that you have not the love of God in you. He knew their hearts. With their lips, they claimed to be worshipers of God. But he could say, but your heart is far from me. I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. Solemn word. The love of God, the supreme love to God, cannot be in one unless the fear of God is in them. I'll explain. For God must be loved as he is, as he is made known in his word, in all of his glorious character. And he's shown to be and declared to be, quote, fearful in holiness. God is holy. He's just. Yea, he must be feared in order to be loved. And the fear of God leads us to believe his word. To know that his word is not to be trifled with. As he makes known throughout. In Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 for instance. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. You remember what John the Apostle wrote when he was bringing to a conclusion that book of Revelation that was given to him in vision after vision after vision? He warns not to add or take from the word of God, lest the name be removed. Solemn. God has given his word. It is the most serious thing that you can do to listen to his word. To give attentiveness to what he says. It's a very solemn thing. Very important thing. The fear of God. 
whose threats are real and whose promises are true leads to attentiveness. It leads to a diligence. It leads to a carefulness in hearing, in believing, and doing His Word. And the fear of God, as we're taught in His Word about Himself, teaches us that He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is indeed the Almighty. He lacks no power. It also teaches us that he is omnipresent, everywhere present. That's a wondrous characteristic of God. He's not part of him here and part of him somewhere and where in the other part of the universe. He's all here and all there. Present. And he is omniscient. Not only has he given us his word, he knows everything we desire. He knows everything we think. He knows everywhere our eyes light. He knows what we allow to be put before them and to come into our desires and our thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows every word we speak. He knows that word before we speak it. As in Psalm 139, O Lord, thou searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together, front, back, where it came from, where it's going, what it really means. He knows it all. In this regard, we're instructed in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, to say what you're going to do, to make a commitment that you say you're going to keep. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Some people talk too much. <laughs> I remember when I was a young boy. I remember a song. You talk too much. You worry me to death. You talk too much. You even worry my pet. Anybody remember that? It was there. Oh, we really had some really good songs. We even had one about a purple people... Purple, what was it? Uh, anyway, <laughs> a flying purple people eater. Yeah, I mean, we had some really good songs. But anyway, that that stays with me. You talk too much, too many words, too many things. Daniel quoted in Sunday school this morning. No man can tame his tongue, his tongue by nature. No man. Eventually it's got to come out what's in one's heart. Eventually it's got to come out the attitude one has towards somebody else. The tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. People will make commitments and break them easily. 
because it is difficult to keep them. The Lord Jesus teaches us, swear not at all. Let your yea be nay. Let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Let the yes be yes and the no, no. God hears every word we say. He knows every commitment we make. He knows every vow that we make. If your heart is true before him, you will bind yourself to be faithful to your words, trustworthy in your promised commitments, in correcting the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He showed the multitude to whom he was speaking that they could not be trusted guides, declaring that if an oath or vow were made, no matter what was claimed to be sworn by, it was still a swearing by God, and they had perverted the whole thing. But there's something else that my mind and thoughts went to when past, and looking at this passage, thinking of these who twisted and turned the law of God concerning oaths and so forth, and these things upside down. These who, of course, put their traditions in place of the commandments of God. These who worshiped God with their mouth, but their heart far from him. There was something else I thought about. If these false teachers were so sharply reproved by the Lord Jesus, who is God incarnate, how serious a matter is it? How serious a matter to twist his only gospel and to turn its truth upside down? How serious is that? The order of God's salvation, the way God saves, you should be able to quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Well, you can quote it in your mind. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The order is essential in the word of God. The order of God's salvation, the way he saves, is essential. The order is by grace. Through faith, not of works, unto good works. Grace 
which is indeed God's unmerited favor. Grace is both sovereign, it's his choice, and it's free. We come without money, without price, without works. We come to take freely of the water of life, to drink deeply into it. It is by God's sovereign will, independent sovereign will, not moved by anything outside of himself. And that sovereign will from eternity bestowed in time. It excludes every form, no matter what form that is, of human works for salvation or even adding to it. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. This salvation is completely free. It is free to every sinner who becomes convinced of his or her guilt realizing themselves apart from God, lost, vile, longing for forgiveness, who hears the gospel of the Son of God, the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, and believingly comes to Him. The only cry they have is one for mercy. Saving faith has Christ alone for its object. It perceives who he is and why he came and looks only to him and him alone as Savior. Look unto me and be saved to all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. That verse that God used to bring Charles Spurgeon to repentance. And in Metropolitan Tabernacle in London to this day, if you look upon and beyond the pastor up on the wall, you'll find that verse. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And the Lord Jesus teaches us to look only to him. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those in the wilderness didn't look at their, their sores and were healed. They didn't look at the doctors and were healed. They didn't try to find some anti-venom around somewhere that somebody had and were healed from those poisonous, venomous bites. The wondrous thing. God made a brazen serpent, put it on a, a pole where it could be viewed from all the tribes, anywhere they were, and whoever looked was healed. The Lord Jesus Christ is Savior. 
This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, that is a faith thing, and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up to the last day. Works play no part whatsoever. Works will follow, but they play no part whatsoever. Saving faith is the gift of God, not that which is drawn from the human will, lest any man should boast. No one who is saved is going to come to God and say, well, you know, I heard and I did this and I did that and I did this and believed and I came down this aisle and I prayed this prayer and I did something. No. No one's going to glory in anything whatsoever they claim to do. As in 1 Corinthians 1, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? <laughs> that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, salvations of God, completely of God, from start to finish. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Works will follow salvation. Works play no part in justification and salvation. Works will follow salvation. Just as certainly as the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, and their movement are of God's ordaining, as we read, for instance, in Psalm 8. As this is his sovereign work alone, so are the works that will surely follow the salvation of those who truly look to, believe in, and trust the Lord Jesus Christ alone. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Just as he ordained the movement of the heavens, and they move according to his will, and we trust his faithfulness that the sun is going to make its rounds exactly like it's supposed to do, that the moon's going to show up exactly when he's purposed it to do so, that we can take our calendar and mark on it when we've got a half moon and a full moon. The heavens move according to his ordaining, exactly as he ordained. And he ordains the labors, the works, the witness, the testimony of those who are genuinely his and genuinely saved. There is no such thing as a do-nothing Christian. 
We'll deal with that later. Actually, when we get to the 25th chapter of Matthew in a particular way there, as the Lord uses a very illuminating parable. No such thing as a do-nothing Christian. Because just as much as God ordains salvation, so it is that he ordains and brings about the good works of those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess who that is still of? It's still of him. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Now we're making an application from the twisting of God's truth as these were doing it in our passage as later we learn was the danger concerning the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to change to modify or reverse the order of salvation as revealed by God is to subvert the gospel as much as the scribes Pharisees, hypocrites, subverted the law by their own man-made rules and interpretations. The battle of the apostles was not with the Roman government. Uh, the Roman government brought a whole lot of trouble. But their battle was not with the Roman government. The battle of the apostles of Christ was for the purity of the gospel. For the modifying of it in any way whatsoever by denial of the unique sonship and deity of Christ, by the denial of the actual incarnation of Christ as we're finding in 1 John in our study there, by adding works in any regard whatsoever for justification by adding in anything to the accomplished redemption of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we add nothing to that. We trust only Christ crucified who cried, it is finished. Redemption is complete in him alone. This was recognized, any subversion of this gospel, any modifying of it, any changing its order, was recognized as the subtle attempt of the devil to destroy the very gospel of the Son of God. To the Corinthians. You remember the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 11, I fear lest it by any means, as the devil deceived Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached or you receive another gospel which you have not accepted, etc. Uh, he said you might well bear with him. These didn't come with tails down, hanging down behind them and horns on their heads and pitchforks in their hands like the heathen devil is represented. They didn't come that way. 
They came as angels of light. They came as great personalities. They came feignedly, caring for the people, and bringing them what they considered to be the truth. False teachers, false prophets, they don't come in wolf's clothing. They come in sheep's clothing. But by the apostles, there was no holding back of the recognition and the condemnation of any who denied, altered in any way whatsoever, and subverted the one and only gospel of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. In 1 John 5.10, John the Apostle writes, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. We're going to deal with that particularly Wednesday evening, actually earlier in the epistle. There's an inward knowledge that is in God's people. It is there. It sustains them. It keeps them. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. The apostles opposed vehemently any uh, alteration whatsoever of the saving gospel that God gave them. Because the apostles were taught the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, personally. So that Paul called his preaching of Christ crucified the testimony of God. He could say, I bring you that which I also received. He was personally taught the gospel of Christ, which was the same identical gospel the Lord Jesus taught the other apostles, though Christ, though, though Paul was born out of due season, as he says. He writes to the Galatians, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me was not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was revealed to me by Christ personally. Any changing or modification or twisting of what he called my gospel and those who proclaimed another gospel was unhesitatingly condemned by him. As you remember, he said to the Galatians, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. My days are limited. I'm older. I don't know when I'm going to be <laughs> leaving this world. I put my head down at night and wonder, well, I don't know if I'll be here in the morning. It's in God's hands. That's his will. I don't need to bother myself with that. I'm going to be here as long as he's willing, willing me to be here. I'm not going to be here a minute later than he wills. I'm not going to leave a minute earlier than he, he wills. That's in his hands. 
I don't have to be all taken up and concerned about that. That's his concern, not mine. But it is my concern that the gospel be established in this congregation, the one grand thing that must be firmly established and continue when God removes me out of the pulpit in whatever way he does it. And I want this, this ministry to continue. Don't you? It's now. Hadn't always been that way. Used to be you go anywhere you wanted. You find the grace of God proclaimed. The gospel of God's wondrous sovereign grace. Now it's rare. To find more than a couple or a few churches in an area. That proclaims the wondrous gospel of God's grace in truth. And I want to see that continue. It has to be established. That's what the apostles did. That was their prime consideration to establish the one saving gospel of Christ. There are emissaries of Satan. They are deceived and are being deceived. They can stand in pulpits, be great speakers. They can have great charisma, drawing personalities. They can have the ability to manipulate the emotions of people. They know how to use things like music. And oratory. This is why, for the protection of the Lord's sheep, that's my concern. My, your concern. Your concern is more I am for my concern. Your concern. Because you're my responsibility. You who are the sheep of Christ, it's my responsibility to establish you as much as possible, to lead you, to teach you in what's right. And that's a fearful responsibility. But you're more important than me. And for the protection of the Lord's sheep, whom he loves, for whom he died, who belong to him by right of his redemption, that protection is to be firmly established in the gospel of God's grace in Christ alone. That was the great thrust of the battle in the first century and before Jude would write beloved when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old were ordained to this condemnation ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the battle. That was the battleground. So the admonition of John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 4 should be taken to heart and taken to heart with all seriousness. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. 
It requires some serious hearers. It requires those who hear in truth and comprehend and understand. What we could call a protective discernment. A protective discernment for you comes by the proper use and the constant use of the Word of God personally, daily, prayerfully. In Hebrews 5, when for the time you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and to become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to those that are full age, even those who by use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. We'll be dealing with that also in First John. How important, how very important it is. The word of God. Those who aren't, those who have been in this word, they're going to receive more when they hear the word. Those who are in the word are going to have the capability to know what's right, what's true, what's false, what's error, what's real, what's the gospel, not what's. Not those who sit up on a Saturday night watching TV until they can't get up and keep their eyes open the next day. Those who get in the word those who prayerfully seek his face and make spiritual preparations, not only physical ones, for the public worship of God and to hear the word proclaimed and to love it by reason of use and by steadfast faithfulness to the pastoral preaching and teaching that God gives you. as the apostle taught in Ephesians 4, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. See, I told you, uh, I think it was last week, about the young preacher pastor, incredibly educated, able to take a text of scripture and open it tremendously. And the old preacher that was in the congregation one day and would ask, what'd you think of that? He didn't like it. <laughs> didn't like it. Didn't I do a good job? Did an excellent job. Didn't I get out the text? What's that? Excellent. He said, well, what was wrong? No Christ. No Christ in it. He said, but the Lord wasn't mentioned in the text. He reminded him that the whole of Scripture is about the Lord. And that everywhere you turn, there is a road to Christ. Everywhere. You see, that's the road I like to find wherever we are. And that gospel to be constantly maintained and upheld the preaching of Jesus Christ is our business constantly. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.